This episode contains descriptions of child abuse and negligence. If you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Previously on Gooned. The airport, if she refuses to get on the plane, I, is there a, a, a plan B if, if she has to be driven? Well, I'll be completely honest. We haven't really had that happen. Usually once they get in the car, they kind of understand that they are going to this place and it usually goes according to plan. We are actually called juvenile transporters, Anna No, dog, Hold on, listen. We have custody of you right now. No, Name, date, credit card authorization form, sign on the line, and for a total of $8,433 to fly, or $7,981 to drive, I could have the goons knocking on my door as soon as I wanted. Completely legally. Today on Gooned. It was humiliating to try and like meet the standards of a point card. It made me a little feral on the inside because um, you had to make a certain amount of points a day in order to have basic privileges. Things like reading, listening to music, writing. If you didn't make your privileges, you like weren't allowed to talk to anyone. You weren't allowed to have free time. You couldn't even glance at the TV. If you glanced at the TV and it was on, then you would get a consequence. You couldn't like eat dessert. You couldn't call your family. What really shifted it for me was seeing all of my friends and all of my peers getting so many consequences and being punished severely and seeing that they weren't making any movement towards getting out. And I was like, I can't do that. Like, I need to get out. I can't be here. Welcome back to Gooned, a podcast about the troubled teen industry. The TTI is made up of many different kinds of programs, from wilderness therapy to boarding schools to lockdown facilities. One of the many problems with the lack of regulation and oversight in the industry is that the distinction between these types of programs is loosely defined. There are no legal requirements to differentiate, say, a residential treatment facility from a therapeutic boarding school, so facility types are left to self-designation. The most common types of programs are wilderness therapy, residential treatment centers, and therapeutic boarding schools, but some programs will call themselves boot camps, group homes, teen ranches, reform schools, emotional growth boarding schools, or religious boarding schools, though all of them are types of behavior modification facilities. The day-to-day lives of students in these facilities will sound much the same, regardless of the reason they were placed in the program and regardless of whether they are fending for themselves in the woods or being herded through school hallways. Therapeutic boarding schools are a type of facility that offer educational credits and a structured school-like environment. Despite the word school in their name, the curriculum they provide is often unsuitable for the ages and needs of students, and education is far from the focus of the program. Therapeutic boarding schools are typically a secondary placement after a wilderness program, and students will spend one to three years there. First, we would wake everyone up. They would have 30 minutes to get up out of bed and get their hygiene done. And then if they had stuff on the floor or anything like that, they had to make their bed and just tidy up the room. Charlie was a staff member at a therapeutic boarding school in northern Utah for a little over a year. 
where she started at the lowest level of day staff and was eventually promoted to a position similar to a supervisor. Charlie oversaw day-to-day activities of students, much like an RA at a college dorm, ensuring that they adhered to the school's rigid timetable. It was a hands-on role, both literally and figuratively, and she quickly learned the ins and outs of the program structure. And then they would have an hour from that point forward. They had shower shifts and feeding shifts, and every week it would switch the shifts. One week they would be AM showers, the next week they would be PM showers, so it would switch. So they would have the one hour to do feeding, showers, and then the cook would cook breakfast. Then once that hour was up, all the feeders were inside, everyone's showers were done, everyone would sit down and eat breakfast. They would have about 30 minutes to eat. First are morning duties. Students have time slots outlined on their schedule for waking up, getting ready, and doing chores. After their morning routine and 30-minute breakfast consumption window, students head to school. They would have about 15 to 20 minutes to clean up before they had to go up to school. And if they were late to school, they'd earn a consequence. Then once they were in school, they would have about two hours for each subject. And then once that two hours hit, they get like a five minute break while the teachers are switching houses. And then they do another two hours and then they would have lunch. They would then have again, the 15 to 20 minutes to clean and then they get back up to school. And again, if they're late, it's another consequence. Then they have two more periods and then After that final class, the night staff handles everything from PM showers, feeding, study hour, and bedtime. Then, following a full day's activities, students report for bedtime. The next day, it's rinse and repeat. At virtually no point during their days are students unmonitored. Some students, identified as problem cases, are even monitored during showers and bathroom breaks. After lights out, all students are watched throughout the night by graveyard staff. Once they were in bed, staff would sit there for multiple hours until it hit midnight. And then at midnight, the shift switched to grave. And then grave just sat with them overnight. Like at the facility, it was like down to the minute. If you were a minute late, you get a consequence. This is Jamie, who spent three months in wilderness therapy at 13 followed by a year and a half at a residential treatment center and nine months at a therapeutic boarding school. After going through three types of TTI programs, Jamie remembers the residential treatment center as the most rigid and wilderness therapy as the most chaotic. In wilderness, we weren't even allowed to know what time it was, and everything was just more vague and chaotic there. And we just kind of relied on the staff to tell us when it was time to move to another thing. I would sneak glances at their watches so that I could know what time it was sometimes. (laughs) The only time where we could vaguely know the time was when we weren't allowed to know the hour, but we were allowed to know the minute because you had to wait like a certain amount of time between eating and using the bathroom so that you couldn't throw up your food. Wilderness therapy programs are also tightly scheduled, but in an effort to simulate a survival situation, few of them share this schedule with the kids. The wilderness therapy program that Jamie was sent to lists this typical day on its website. 8 a.m., wake up. 8.20 a.m., morning chores. 8.30 a.m., crush fire pit coals, breakfast. 10 a.m., group therapy. 
11 a.m., two-hour hike. 1 p.m., lunch. 2 p.m., completion of therapeutic and academic assignments. 3 p.m., three-hour hike. 6 p.m., chores, set-up camp, fire building. 6.45 p.m., dinner prep and eat. 8.30 p.m., evening group therapy. And 10 p.m., sleep. Instead of school, Jamie spent their days in wilderness therapy, building fires, pitching tents, and making or finding food. And yes, that is five hours of hiking, six days a week, for preteens and teenagers who are often underfed and dehydrated. Though the different types of programs, from therapeutic boarding schools to wilderness therapy, vary in their environment, virtually all of them use the level system a structure that assigns numerical points to behavior, moving students through a series of stages towards graduating the program. As they move up through the levels, belongings that were taken away at intake can be returned. They can be allowed to talk with their peers or call their families, have desserts or snacks, listen to music or watch TV, and sometimes even leave campus on group outings. Kids enter a program at its lowest level, where their belongings are stripped away along with their privileges, which often refer to basic needs. In residential treatment centers and therapeutic boarding schools, the rewards and privileges afforded to kids for achieving certain levels are often things like speaking, communicating with your family, or listening to music. In wilderness programs, the framing of children's needs as rewards for advancement through the program is even more concerning, with food, sleep, shelter, and temperature being granted as rewards or taken away as punishment. If you didn't make your privileges, you like weren't allowed to talk to anyone. You weren't allowed to have free time. You couldn't even glance at the TV. If you glanced at the TV and it was on, then you would get a consequence. You couldn't like eat dessert. You couldn't call your family. Wilderness therapy survivors remember blankets being used as rewards for good behavior in the dead of winter, and adequate nutrition being awarded or revoked based on the day's performance. After a three-hour hike, one survivor remembers being denied their can of beans, a meal they usually ate with a spoon carved out of sticks, because staff believed they had behaved poorly. Many documented cases of death and severe injuries at troubled teen facilities have occurred in the wilderness setting where undesirable behavior can mean survival necessities are revoked. Jamie was sent to wilderness therapy due to struggles with mental illness, self-harm, and a suicide attempt. Staff believed that these struggles rendered Jamie dangerous. I was someone who was not allowed to carve a spoon out of the sagebrushes because I was a self-harm risk. So they made me just find a stick on the ground and brush off the dirt on my pants every time that I had to have a meal. Delirious and hungry as they made their way through the forest, Jamie had been labeled as a problem child. They didn't receive adequate nutrition for the physical labor required to make it through days of hiking, setting up camp, and carrying supplies. So I was just constantly eating dirt because that was the only way that I could eat. And that's just so ridiculous to me. We were obviously not getting the nutrition that we needed. There was also a lot of coals in the food because the fire would like crackle while we were cooking on it. And I would just take a bite never knowing if I was going to end up eating a coal. With food used as a reward for learning skills, Jamie and their peers were so deprived that vegetables were a greatly anticipated luxury. 
In an interview with Marley Porter, who hosts the podcast Broken Promises, Jamie tells a story about finding joy in bagged salad. We were supposed to learn how to make our own fires. And if you were successful in like making a flame, your reward was that the therapist would bring you a bagged salad from the grocery store. And people were very into this. Like we were so desperate for fresh vegetables that I just remembered the lettuce tasting so fresh and good the one or two times that I was able to make a fire. So we had five official levels and they tried not to call them levels because of the backlash for a lot of programs. So they called them phases. This is Chris, who spent 13 months in a residential treatment center at the age of 14 for depression and what the program called identity issues. He quickly realized that identity issues meant the pathologization of being transgender, but that is a story for another episode. Like many others, Chris's program was structured around a series of levels through which students progressed before they could quote-unquote graduate the program. The level structure is simple in theory, but in practice, it quickly becomes convoluted and opaque for staff and students alike. Your first official level was called expectation, which is just kind of like, oh, you're learning the rules, you understand what's expected of you, here's like the chores that you have to do, here's the groups that you have to attend, and you have to be in line of sight, staff member at all times, and you have to do like values assignments in order to meet the requirements for moving up to the next phase. So there's therapy assignments that you had to complete in order to get to the criteria for the next phase. The element of social control, of tasking students with the oversight of their peers, creates an environment of high alert. Many facilities pit children against each other for their own progression up the level system. Every time that somebody was trying to be voted up to the next phase, they would have to hand out a form to every other person in the house, like their peers. And there was a checklist on that form that was like, uh, does this person take their meds? Do they follow the rules? Like you're basically having to police each other. And if somebody was not turning in their form or wrote like a scathing review for like their peer, like that person would not get promoted. So we were forced into a position where we had to keep each other in check. At the residential treatment facility that Chris attended, there were five phases. Students entered the program on safety a phase so low that it didn't even count as one of these five phases, but was a precursor to entering the phase system. When everybody starts out, you're starting at the lowest level. It's called safety. You're within five feet of a staff member at all times. You have no shoes, you have no jacket. You have to sleep with somebody sitting next to your bed. You also couldn't talk to your parents while you're on safety. Newcomers to the program are often the most restricted, beginning their stay with the most punitive measures the facility can offer. They are level zero. You need to like sign a contract saying that you're you're going to be compliant and do whatever like you're asked. And um, if you don't sign it, you're not leaving safety. So most people after two weeks are pretty tired of it. So um, that's when you can move up to your first official level. The first official level, expectation, saw kids learning the law of the land. Students on expectation were grouped together, always to remain within sight of a staff member. As they progressed through the levels, sometimes students were rewarded with periods of minutes alone. You can have like 15 minutes to yourself before you have to go check in with a staff member, which means like you can go outside or to a different room. Levels are often accompanied by assignments and requirements. 
Students work their way through levels while they go to school, attend group and individual therapy, or hike through the wilderness. Expressing disagreement with or even asking questions about the level system and methods of therapy is discouraged and often punished. The faster a student appears to buy into the treatment model, the faster they can hope to progress through the levels. You have to start like learning the therapy language, doing the, the assignments in order to get to the next phase. And what you would get like longer phone calls, maybe you could go off campus to get hygiene products, or you could spend 30 minutes before you had to like go to a staff. There's no telling how long a student might remain on a certain level. Many survivors remember languishing at one level or bouncing between two levels for months at a time. Levels weren't something that changed day to day. Level was something that you had for months. I'm working on my two to get to my three, and I have to apply for that, and I have to do all these assignments. Like, you're constantly being watched, so you have to act like the level you want to be in order to prove that you can be the next level. Then if you get dropped, you have to work back up. Depending on the facility, advancement through the level system can be determined by the therapeutic team, the day staff, a student's peers, or a combination of the three. Chris says that at his facility, the day staff were able to knock students down a level, but not award them a level up. So the staff wouldn't assign you the levels. Your therapist and the whole treatment team decided what level you were on. Uh, So staff had no authority over moving you up in levels. They could only drop you. Like, they could only drop you to safety. There is no way to account for the variability of staff assessments to prevent favoritism, to keep retaliation in check. Students interact with a different staff member every day, and level progression is subjective, meaning there's no standardization for what grants points towards a level up. A student's time in the facility, the necessities they're allowed, the tuition that's accumulating, not to mention their freedom, is based entirely on this kind of progression. Surely, there must be some kind of failsafe to prevent levels from being used nefariously. So, no, absolutely nothing. These two staff members, Madison and Charlie, each worked at different residential treatment centers in the late 2010s. Both Madison and Charlie said that progression through the level system of their facilities was often arbitrary and always subjective. They had scores daily. Like, their behavior was quantified. Scale of zero to five. Like, we were told to be as objective about it as we could. I heard different things. I heard some people say, oh, yeah, give them a five if they deserve it. And other people say, like, it should be almost impossible for them to get a five. Madison remembers different staff having different personal ideas of what score to give a student based on their behavior. Favoritism ran amok. Retaliation and power struggles were common. So... If someone was having a day where their anxiety was really bad, they were practicing coping skills, but also needed some help with co-regulation. Some coaches would give that like a three for using co-regulation. Some coaches, because they had to use co-regulation, would give that like a one. And other coaches would give that a four. It's very subjective. And it took me a long time to realize how subjective it was. Charlie, too, remembers feeling lost as to how to assign points to kids' successes and struggles. I would give them rewards for small things, whereas there were other staff that literally only saw the negative and they knew that they were just not going to make their points that day. Or specifically, they knew, oh, this staff's on shift. I'm not going to do anything because this staff is here and I don't like this staff because there's just no point because they're never going to praise me for doing anything. 
Many students learned what each specific staff member was looking for and tried to modify their behavior to avoid being dropped in levels. There was a strategy to it. Learn who likes you. Learn who has it out for you. Act accordingly. Pick your battles. Do your best. Soldier on. You'll quickly learn which staff are fair and which staff are not. Even staff were well aware that playing to the system was the best way for students to, quote, make progress. So there's one coach assigned to each room. So one coach will be over four kids, and it's written up on a whiteboard. So there often was fighting if there was a coach that the kids really liked. They're like, oh, man, I wanted you to be my coach today. Because some of them were like, this coach grades me really unfairly, and others are like... Yeah, I got a low score, but I deserved it. It's a complex system, and it can very much be based on favoritism. Points were associated not just with needs and privileges, but privacy. The lower a student's level, the fewer minutes in the day they could be alone. The point system kind of contributes to your level of care of how in eyesight of staff you have to be. Levels of oversight go by different names in different facilities, but virtually every facility attaches degrees of surveillance to each level. The newest students are often not allowed even one moment alone and are monitored even when they use the bathroom. So, like, there's the arm's length, which you have to be within arm's length of a staff. Then there's 15 feet, which you can't be further than 15 feet from a staff member. Then there's eyesight, um, which just means that they have to be within direct eyesight no more than I think it's 30 feet from a staff. There's elevated eyesight where they can be like in another room as long as staff can see you. And then there's the final where they could literally go like upstairs to a different floor of the house. There is no evidence supporting the effectiveness of these systems, their levels, or the assignments and requirements associated with them, especially not one that the staff were aware of. I have no idea what it was based on. Not one staff member I spoke to could point to a sound therapeutic basis for the level structure. At no point were Charlie or Madison told what the purpose of the levels were, nor what psychological treatment they were intended to mimic. Is it based on a type of therapy, a certain goal, a model of treatment? Nobody could say. None of the day-to-day staff training manuals I could find cite any sources, methodologies, or studies for their model or for any activities or requirements involved in each level. Rather, levels were reflective of how compliant, how easy to control and maneuver the students had become. It was supposedly based on effort. Like, they would get a five if the staff basically had to put no effort into them, and they would earn a zero if staff had to constantly put in effort It was basically compliance-based. The level system reflects a strategy of behavior control, not one of healing or emotional progression. This means that the fastest way to get out, survivors say, is to, quote, work the program. I think the word comply is the best way to put it. Sam was sent to a residential treatment center in 2015 after a long struggle with their mental health and a suicide attempt. They remember the frustration of the level system and a point in treatment when they realized that the only hope of getting out was to engage as minimally as possible, keep their head down, and give in. Like Once I decided to comply with what they wanted, I shot through the program. It took me a while to go from pre-contemplation, like the very first level you were on when you get there, to contemplation, then to preparation. It took me like four or five months to go through those. 
And then once I got to preparation, a month later I was on action. And then like sometime later, I was out of there. Most of the survivors I talked with say that this realization came about three to five months into treatment. The realization that your best shot at going home was to put up as little fight, ask as few questions, and push back as little as you could. Coincidentally, many survivors who were able to obtain their records post-treatment saw on those records that this was around the time the program recognized them as progressing through treatment. I was looking through even just like academically, like looking at my grades that I was assigned. I (laughs) went from being like marked as having like poor behavior in the classroom and really unsatisfactory grades to suddenly being the perfect student. My grades went from like below average in markings on behavior to like excellent. (laughs) And staff are instructed to conceal the level system from students, making it even harder to know where they stand. We weren't supposed to tell the kids specifically what number they got unless there was something in their therapeutic plan that specifically mentioned that. This fed into the realization that Sam and so many others had. If they're to make any progress through the system, there's no point in focusing on getting better, only on trying their best to figure out what is expected of them. What really shifted it for me was seeing all of my friends and all of my peers getting so many consequences and being punished severely and seeing that they weren't making any movement towards getting out. And I was like, I can't do that. Like, I need to get out. I can't be here. At a time when teens need support and transparency to learn how to cope with the challenges of the real world, they're suddenly thrown into an unfamiliar environment full of strangers where their every struggle is assigned a numerical value. So they would get scored once in the morning and once in the morning to afternoon and then once from the afternoon to evening. And there were four categories. So they had the potential to earn a total of 20 points per shift. I would say the average student on a pretty typical day would earn... 12 points. They are watched around the clock, not only by staff, but by peers who are incentivized to report negatively on their behavior. These kids had almost zero privacy. The only privacy they would have is in the bathroom, and even that could be taken away. They had to have someone listening outside of the door and having a complete conversation with them while they were in the bathroom, if they were on some kind of watch that made it so they couldn't be alone and they have nowhere to turn. What's important to understand is that in the environment of a treatment program, points and levels are everything. You live and you die by your level. Your every behavior and every struggle is assigned a point value, and your only way to freedom is to progress through the levels. These programs strip children of their belongings, their contact with the outside world, their possessions, their hobbies, and their support network turn their parents and caregivers against them, and then tell them that the way to earn these things back is compliance. It was humiliating to try and like meet the standards of a point card. It made me a little feral on the inside, because um, you had to make a certain amount of points a day in order to have basic privileges. That's how you break a person down. They considered these things a privilege, but like things like reading, listening to music, writing. You had to earn the right to have a snack. And I thought that was insane. We had no, like, basic comforts there, and there was this attitude among the staff of, if you wanted something that wasn't necessary to literally keep you physically alive, then you were a spoiled brat and you were being dramatic. 
the use of basic needs and human connection as behavior incentives in wilderness programs, residential treatment centers, and therapeutic boarding schools teaches kids to work the system, not to heal. Assigning numerical values to kids' struggles and successes using things like food and sleep as punishment and rewards is not therapy, nor is it treatment for addiction, eating disorders, depression, or anxiety. And often, the level structure is used to hold kids for months or years longer than they or their parents had been led to believe. With no clear rules or reasons for advancing or dropping kids in the system, programs can tell parents, well, your child is only a level four, they can't graduate until they reach level six. And then at level five, oh, your child has relapsed. Oh, your child got into an altercation with staff. Oh, your child is defiant. We drop them to level four. It's extremely common for a facility to say like, oh, your child will be here for probably six months. And then it's like almost never going to actually be six months. They're going to say, well, your kid actually just totally relapsed when they didn't. They'll find a problem that isn't there and tell the parents, actually, we desperately need to keep your kid for a few more months because if they go back now, then they're just going to fall back into old patterns or they're going to like literally die or something like that. Assigning points to behavior is an insidious way to drain parents of tuition money and to keep lengths of stay nebulous. Though facilities often advertise stays of four to six months, many kids stay in one facility for longer than a year. I spent 438 days at the program, and I don't want to do it again. Remember when Sharon was persuaded to send Logan to a secondary placement just days after his return from wilderness? He was there. He can tell you the exact number of days. <laughs> I can't remember exactly how many, but it is right around, I think, I think it was 111. He had really only been starting to make good progress closer to the end. Like he really ramped up, like very logarithmic scale, like no change, no change, no change. And then finally, he kind of understood more about like why he was doing stuff and how to think about things. And so we kind of all felt that if we brought him home, he might be stuck again. And we might have a really hard time (laughs) getting him to another program that could help continue that growth. One of the things that the therapeutic boarding school told us when they'd heard that we have a, a kid that's kind of coming out of a wilderness therapy program and to their school, as they said, that can be a really good thing because they tend to find that kids that are going to the therapeutic boarding school will progress faster with those therapies when they're already coming out of wilderness. If the program is so bent on driving a wedge of suspicion and distrust between children and their parents, what's the pitch? Especially in light of heightened public scrutiny, what or who compels a parent to send their child away, especially to multiple facilities in a row? Tune in to the next episode of Gund as I discover just how easily a desperate parent can be convinced that the troubled teen industry is the answer they've been looking for. I was in a psych ward and my parents came to visit and they brought this glossy pamphlet. It was like girls riding horses and this big manner. I just remember this feeling of absolute dread. It is, it is an intense experience, but, you know, it's a lot better than what it used to be. Being like, fuck, no. I have this gut feeling like this is not right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gund. To see program materials and learn more about daily life in a troubled teen industry program, head to patreon.com slash goondpodcast. 
Remember to rate, review, and follow Gund wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out goondpodcast.com for more information. Special thanks to Marley Porter, whose podcast Broken Promises is available wherever you get your podcasts and at brokenpromisespodcast.com. Gund is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. Original artwork for the series was created by Sam Doe. Thank you to all of the amazing survivors, activists, researchers, former staff, families, experts, and everyone else who lent their stories to this podcast, both anonymous and otherwise.